What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Disc Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all love and support, and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform, and make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Disc Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Molly, how's it going? Welcome to the platform. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. No, no, it's good to have you here. And um, I'm really happy and excited to jump into the things we're going to jump into just based on, like, what you do. Oh, my God. Okay, what do I do? <laughs> All right, you're going to have to, you'll have to ask me something specific. Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to get very specific. I know. Um, but how's life been in general? It's been weird. It's been it's been weird and wonderful and and weird. I mean, this last couple of years, yeah. you know, who knows who they are anymore? Right. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's it's been a yeah, it's been a I mean, reconfiguring on all kinds of levels. And right. um, but I think I think we needed this. I think mm. this was a I think this was I mean, it certainly didn't answer all the questions, right. but I think that we needed this two year. Right. Uh, re time of reflection. Right. It definitely yeah. showed questions that needed to be answered that maybe we was avoiding yeah. or ignoring or neglecting. Or new questions that we've never even. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah true. And so um, for people who may not know who Molly Secor is, I said that right, right? Secor. Secor, Secor. But, but let's just Molly say there's a Secor. lot of people that don't know. So go ahead. <laughs> but... Um, you're, you're, so let's get into like your background, right? How does somebody like yourself get into trying to dismantle white privilege, be an anti-racist? Um, okay. How did that, like, Can yeah. I, start wherever you want to start Okay, from. I'm going to start with I didn't want to, okay? Mm. This is some, not anything I, this was not my, this is not what I planned for my life. <laughs> <What>? Um <laughs> I grew up in a small town called Messina, New York, upstate okay. New York. There was one black person. There might have been more than one, but only one that I knew. Right. And I don't think there was. He was adopted. Um, we actually know each other now and are friends. But um, everyone was aware of this guy named Lyle Baxter. Mm -hmm. um, we all knew who he was. He was very popular. He was older than me, so you know how mm -hmm. that thing is. Three grades ahead is like, oh, my God. <laughs> so he didn't know I existed. Right. But I knew he, he existed. And... Um, he was in this small town in upstate New York, adopted, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he was a basketball player. He was voted, I think he was class clown. I think he was most likely to, you know, most likely to, to, to do everything. Everyone everything, loved right. him. So we grew up under the impression that there was no such thing as racism in right. Mississippi, New York. At least I did. Right. Um, but I had an inkling that there was something else going on because I also lived very close to a reservation. Mm. Um, and the way that Native people were treated, I saw it everywhere. Right. So I knew something was up with that. So that, uh, very early on, I right. had this, like, that didn't feel good to me. And right. um, But I didn't give very much thought. You live in a community right. in upstate New York. You've met one black person who doesn't know who you are, right. <laughs> who's not exactly your friend. Right. Um, and so anyway, I had that, that's the background. Mm -hmm. um, I moved away when I was a teenager, very young, 16, I graduated from high school. 
Um, and I left and I never really went back. Mm -hmm. And I started out, I ended up being in Caribou, Maine for a while. And then I was in uh, San Francisco, then Denver, then back in New York, then Florida. And so I moved all around at Los Angeles. Right. I lived a lot of different places with met a lot of different people right and even then my consciousness about the issues of race i wasn't an activist i wasn't i was somebody who was concerned mm -hmm. but i wasn't doing anything you know right. there wasn't anything um and when i was in los angeles and i know this is long but when i was in los angeles i was an actor for about 10 years and i was oh, wow. and i lived in i know that's a whole nother lifetime <laughs> it's a whole nother life it's a whole nother <laughs> life um but i was doing theater and um, film and mostly just auditioning in LA. You don't, you you know, I was trying to be an actor. Right. I'm gonna do that for the camera <laughs> um, with my little Band-Aid. Um, and so I realized, I woke up one day and was like, A, I'm not getting much work and B, I don't want to spend my life right. waiting to be chosen. And it, it just something inside me was like, this is not right, this is not who I am. And in the meantime, I met a musician, fell in love. He was moving to Nashville to release a record back in the day when it meant something to release a record. Right. Um, and uh, I moved here sight unseen, never been to the South. I mean, never been south of the Mason-Dixon line, except wow. to Florida, which I don't count. What year was this? Uh, this would have been 1994. Okay. Yeah. I'm old. <laughs> no, no, I'm, just, um, I'm trying to... <laughs> no, no, don't, please don't do too much math, okay? Let's just not get into a lot of math here. Um, and so I, uh, I, I'm on the plane. I've never visited Nashville. Mm -hmm. I'm coming here to be with a man that I've only been dating for nine months. Um, and I'm on the plane, and all of a sudden, mid, you know, 35,000 feet, I went, what in the world are you doing moving to Nashville, Tennessee? <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. And as soon as I asked the question, in my head, mm -hmm. I heard, and I, it wasn't an audible voice, not everybody else heard it, but I heard it, it said, there's a lot of work around racism and that's what you're gonna do. And I was like, who said that? Wow. <laughs> what is that? I it had never, like, it was such a shock to me. Well, like those kinds of things that happen, I didn't think about it again for right. a really long time. And so my life started to unfold. We ended up getting a house in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And um, I started working at the, I was doing theater, but I was also working at the Oasis Center as a residential counselor. And then I got a job where I was actually going into juvenile prison and working with kids doing life skills. I was right. teaching them filmmaking and screenwriting under the guise of life skills. I was right. trying to get them to tell their life story so that mm -hmm. they could start as sort of an alternative to therapy. It was like, let's get them to think about these things. We'll get them writing their stories. Right. And it was really powerful. I ended up starting a couple youth video programs in Nashville, worked with Bethlehem Center, all kinds of community. I got grants from the Soros right. Foundation. And I was working for the Oasis Center, which at that time was 88.1% white women. Mm. 99%, I would say, or 90% of the people that came through the system, through the, the shelter for teenagers, were right. black, Latino, some Asians, not many. And all of a sudden, I started going, it, I got that like niggly thing inside me going, hmm, all the helpers, right. or all the therapists, everybody's white, great people, good-hearted, you know, they're, most people were there for, I'm assuming, the right reasons, but I was like, this this kind of feels funny. And so there right. was, I started paying attention to things. And then I took my vacation 
from the Oasis Center and went over to Fisk University mm. for their summer institute. They were reviving the summer institute, which is a week of scholars and academics and actors and poets and all kinds of people around the world coming together right. to talk about systemic racism. And that was the beginning of my new life. This was in 97. When you got introduced to it and like really like was like, wow, did you reflect on like your childhood and like maybe your parents and maybe why it never came up in your household or in your community? Everything. What happened was, um, have you ever heard of Dr. Frances Cress Welsing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. She was one of the very first, I mean, I knew Dr. Ray Winbush was the person who was the director of the Race Relations Institute at the time. Uh -huh. um, it's because of, he changed my life, and I, you know, I, I hope he sees this. Um, and he kind of, in, in some ways, what he tolerated from me in terms of questions, I have so much respect for this guy. I mean, I laugh now when I think about who I was then. Right. But you are where you are, and I'm not right. making fun of anybody who's starting from, you know. Right. Uh, but at the time, I was at I was at a um, I was at a, a, a program that friend, Dr. Welsing was um, giving, and it was talking about white privilege. And I was one of probably three white people at the conference. I never saw. I mean, for a whole week, I didn't right. see very many white people at all. So, um, and I was the white person that raised my hand to say, "Where are all the white people?" You know, it was right. it was it was like that. <laughs> but I met her in the lobby. And she came up to me and said, I want to ask you, you just sat and listened to my presentation. What is, you're here at this conference, um, what does it feel like for you to hear this? How are you going to use your white privilege to change things, to change the system, to address systemic racism? And I began to say to Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, a renowned psychologist, black psychologist, that, oh, oh, well, well actually, you know, I grew up in upstate New York, and you know, we didn't. We were on assistance for some time when my father left, and and you know, so we didn't really have you know the privilege. I mean, I did. I said wow. all of those things to Dr. Welsing, and <laughs> we. She spoke to me for almost an hour in the lobby, and um, it was life changing. And I went home that night, and I cried all the way home because it unraveled all the things I thought about myself. I was this hip, white, liberal woman who kind of got it enough to where I'd spend my vacation going to the, you know, right. it was all that, um, there was a little bit of pride in there. I was in the right. early stages. And um, so anyway, I cried all the way home because I was starting to question who I was and what I was. Mm -hmm. And for a week, I would say that it was heavy white woman tears, you know, of, oh my God, you know. Right. And, uh, that week, I began to make commitments within myself. Um, that conversation kind of un, you know, undid me because mm -hmm. she was like, well, let me explain to you. you right. know? It was like, right. you are part of the system. You didn't ask for it, but you are. And there's a lot that you can do. And she said, if you want to, and if you're serious, and this is the thing that changed my life. She said, if you're serious, there are two things that you can do. One is that you can tell black and brown people what white people say when they're not around. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing, oh my God, it just shot out my head. And you can, um, don't rely on black people to teach you. Mm. Be your own educator. Mm. Um, and I was like, cause you know, right. that thing, that temptation to thing is you, you, you want to call that black person that you know and say, hey, is it really true? You know, right. that kind of thing. Right. Um, 
And so that was the beginning. And then during this period of time, I started, I had already started writing newspaper columns. Well, I started writing about exploring whiteness and privilege. Now, this was in 1997, 98. And luckily, the Tennessean actually had a real newspaper with a real publisher, who, I mean, a real media person. It was John Sigenthaler at the time. And Dwight Lewis was the head of editorials there. And Dwight Lewis um, started publishing my columns. And so I would get published quite a bit wow. at the Tennessean. And Terry Quillen, uh, Dwight Lewis and T- Terry Quillen. And, uh, and Dwight Lewis is probably somebody you need to meet if you haven't already met him. No, I haven't. OK, yeah, yeah, you need to hook up with him. OK. Um, but uh, anyway, I started writing columns for them. And I started writing about reparations. And I mm-hmm. wrote an article called um, Riding the Reparations ba- Bandwagon, A White Woman's Perspective. And that article ended up becoming an entire chapter in Dr. Winbush's book that he edited together called Should America Pay? Wow. And again, this is going back now. By the time this came out, I think his book came out in 2001. So I had a chapter in a book called Should America Pay? Right. Um, and there were a lot of different people in that book, uh, right. a lot of different perspectives. So, you know, there's so much to say. But right. anyway, I ended up being invited to be a board member of the Race Relations Institute. Now, the other person that I haven't mentioned yet who really influenced me, and that was a big awakening for me, was Tim Wise, mm-hmm. who has become a very dear friend of mine. Right. Um, and we've worked together, and we've, you know, we're just, we're friends. But, you know, He's, he's been a mentor and an example. I mean, I don't know that I would have been able to pursue right. how I did for as long as I did without Tim as an example. And, of course, now there are more. There's Peggy McIntosh, who was also right. a, a big example. She wrote Unpacking the Knapsack of White Privilege. Um, so in my early days, um, I began to not like white people very much. Seriously. <laughs> I went through, and I call it a phase. And right. I'm, you know... And I, I laugh now because, you know, right. I all, I've been married twice. Both my husbands are white. My, uh, all my parents, everybody around me is white. And I just started feeling this weird feeling. But what I realized was I went through this phase because I was trying to distance myself from this thing. I right. didn't want to be connected to this thing called systemic white right. supremacy. Right. And back in the day, remember, this is in the early 2000s, using the words white supremacy, Nobody said that, but right. you know, it was like that was a Malcolm X thing to do. Right. You know I mean? right, right. Nobody said, and white privilege was fairly new. Mm-hmm. So this was at the time cutting edge. It was cutting edge, <laughs> and there was a lot yeah. of repercussions for talking about right. it. Um, and what I didn't realize is that I probably had there was probably a latent anger in me anyway, mm-hmm. and I channeled it into this. Um, so while there were, in some ways, I feel like it, it, it had to happen this way. I mean, I became sort of a, I was igniting a, a bit of a fire. Right. I know people were a little bit put off, white people. Right. Even my white friends were, it was like, I was like oh, does she have to yeah, definitely. And that's what yeah. I'm like, how, what challenges did you face maybe with friends, family, peers, colleagues, or what have you? When you took, when you went down this path and started calling, like just calling shit out, like, "Hey, this is okay. this is this, this is that." You I know. think I got invited to fewer dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, dating, dating is different. 
You know, I mean, I mean, I, by that time, my husband and I had split up in 2001, so I'm now single, right? And I'm doing this, and every, and then what happened was, the more I was writing, the more I was, people were asking me to come and speak about this stuff, and one of the first questions that would come up is, um, th this always came up. They wanted, they wanted to know who my husband was, and before we were divorced, and I would be out doing workshops and stuff, which I started doing with Dr. Winbush and people at Fisk University. Naomi Tutu, Theda Murphy, all of these people influenced yeah. me greatly. Um, but the first question that would come up if I would do a public forum is they would try to figure out how to, was I married to a black guy? They wanted to know that, you know? And so they would like, so what does your husband think about this? And I would say, my husband doesn't think anything about this. Um, mm. It's, my husband is a musician. I, you know, right. I'm something else. And so I would sort of dance with it like that because right. I knew they wanted to know because they wanted to know if they could discount what I was saying. Right. Um, and so then I would share that my husband was indeed white right. and that my father was white, my brother's white, and I love all of these people. So this right. isn't about me hating white people, although I did go through that phase right. where I was, I didn't hate white people, but I was just like, oh God. And even, you know, some of my friends at the time, now I have mm -hmm. to say, you know, at the time, um, I knew people that had really big hearts and gave money and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but did not see their everyday participation in it right. and so I would go uh, one example and, and I'm gonna give you the extreme example but this is back uh, this is before Trayvon Martin I was invited to go to a community meeting it was in East Nashville it was when you know big transition happening right. it's, was predominantly black for a long time right. all of a sudden here comes the neighborhood right. and so there was a community meeting because there had been of course there's gonna be clashes in crime and there's been a lot of break-ins and so they were having community meetings it was white people having community meetings for the most part at mm -hmm. you know places like Beyond the Edge or whatever. Okay. And I remember this one time they brought in the priest, uh, the police, the guy, the chief of uh, the East Precinct. Okay. And so they were having a conversation, and um, the question was, um, you know, that what was happening is they were putting out an APB on some of the crimes, and and this is the exact quote: If you see a young black male between the ages of 12 and 18 wearing a hoodie call the police wow and that was their that was their and and I the only reason I was asked to come to this meeting is because a woman who was African-American at Oasis said told me exactly what had happened she said you've got to come to this meeting and hear this and 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 maybe you know do something right. um, or say something and so I went to the meeting sure enough they did the same thing and so I, I raised my hand and I said um, so what is the description of this right. potential criminal and they said, well, we just said. And I said, no, that's not a description. That's an indictment of every young black male in this neighborhood. I mean, you've just targeted. Every, every young, yeah, 12 to 18, yeah. I said, who's not wearing a hoodie? Right. You know, who, uh, the development, I mean, the developmental difference between a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old. Right. You're not talking about facial hair. You didn't talk about, I mean, shoulders, height, right. weight, nothing. And I said, you've just set every single black house on fire right. in this neighborhood. Um, and it was horrible. And, you know, people were, and, the, you know, this one woman, I don't remember her name. I couldn't even spot her if I saw her now. But she raised her hand and she said, well, 
I was in the kitchen last night doing the dishes and I looked out in the alley while I'm doing the dishes and these three young black males were walking through the alley with hoodies on and they had a basketball and they were going through the alley. And so I called the police and, um, and I said, so do you think they were on their way to play basketball at the community center? Right. And her response was, I'm not a racist. You know, it was that knee-jerk kind of thing. So anyway, it was the early days of, oh. you know, and I don't think that I was very skilled in those days at right. handling a lot of this stuff. Right. I, I really, and I, and I also think that I had a little bit of a, you know, I was the white person who got it, which was not helpful. Right. Um, but I was, you know, I was on my training wheels. Right. You know, and um, so there were just, I mean, I, there, I would be in these situations, and the more I was aware of it, the more situations I would be in. Right. Um, and so I would write, I wrote an article about that. I didn't call the woman out, but I called the conversation out. Mm -hmm. And there was a firestorm. And um, You like starting fires. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I I have to say, I mean, right. the, truthfully, there must have been part of me. And I did right. discover that when I ended up having stage four cancer. Right. So, yeah, and, and, and that's what I want to kind of pivot to, because during this, you got stage four cancer, you diagnosed with stage four cancer. How did that affect your commitment to just social change or... How did they change you internally? Like knowing well, that you had it this changed. Diagnosis? It changed big time, but it, it it was. First of all, I had to wrestle with getting stage four cancer, and right. I'm not one of those people that I. Everything that happens to me, I look at what's going on inside of me that I'm attracting it. It doesn't right. matter what it is, and even if there's a systemic uh, component to it, okay. But energetically, I really believe that you know energy goes where energy flows or energy flows where energy goes. So right. what's going on here? So I, I spent, you know, I was in treatment for over a year, chemo and radiation. Um, and what I discovered was that, um, you know, in looking at the kind of cancer that I had, it was stage four. Mm -hmm. Wasn't sure, you know, no one said I was going to die, but a couple people that I knew that I'd been introduced to that had the same thing, you know, died while I was in treatment. Right. So, you know, I it was a come to come to Jesus for someone who's not really a Christian, but um I it had I had a moment. I mean, a, a very very long moment. And so, um I had to look at the anger, the so I was using the fuel from my anger right. that had nothing to do with racism or anything else. It was something that I came in with. Right. And so, and it's not that it's a bad thing to use it for, but it's not as, it's not long-term, it's not sustainable, mm -hmm. it's not healthy, mm -hmm. and it's not productive. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, you know, I would respond really quickly, and I still can. Right. If you get me on the wrong day, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, because there's something about injustice. It really right. does. I mean, and no matter how much, and I said I'm not religious, but I'm, you know, I have a deep connection to spirit and faith. Right. And um, and so I know that when I respond really quick and something comes out my mouth that may not just call someone's attention, but somehow shut them down or diminish them, then I, you know. Right. It's, it's not. So I... I didn't do anything for the whole time. I was obviously, I was about healing. I was on the couch for over a year. And I realized that there was a way to go about this. I would never not 
be active. I would never right. not be. I mean, I will until the day I die. Right. But it's not my profession. Mm -hmm. I don't want to make a profession of it. Um, which I was, you know, I've always been a filmmaker, but I was doing a lot of speaking, going to colleges. And I was like, if, if I'm going to do that again, I'm going to come at it from a different way. And I'm going to start asking people more questions mm. and let them wrestle inside. Right. Um, like I had to. That's what changed me is I went home and wrestled. Right. You know, after meeting Dr. Welsing, I made a plan that I was going to think about being white every day, 24-7, until the time I got up, the time I went to sleep. Right. I was going to do nothing but think about being white and what that really means, because I didn't know. Right. Um, and I couldn't make it past 10 in the morning. Mm. I had to forget all about it. You know, mm. I had to, you know, you I had to, I had to, yeah, it had to be, it was intentional. Right. It was, a com I made a commitment. Right. Um, what did you end up coming up with? Have you got the results of that? Uh, or what I, it means to be white for you? What it means to be white for me, um, I, I understand the, the responsibility to myself mm -hmm. and to those around me to acknowledge, for me, anything, all, all the systems in place, whether right. it's education or health care. But, you know, I'm living in the South. Right. It's ex no one can tell me it's not exacerbated here. Right. It's just, that's just the way it is. So I've chosen to live here. So I... By my denial, okay, so what I was getting to, and it, maybe you can edit, I'm swinging back to that conversation. <coughs> swinging back to the conversation, sorry, swinging back to the conversation at that community meeting. Uh -huh. The reason that was important, okay, for me, I felt like the reason it was important and instructive for other white people is that if I, as a white woman, don't realize that my unconscious fear and bias puts young black males at risk, like as vis-a-vis, -vis, if you see a young black male between 12 and 18 who's with wearing a hoodie, a hood, with a yeah. hoodie call the police, if I don't realize that my fear of that, my irrational fear of that, um, if I'm not in check with that and know that that lives inside me and is motivating me, I don't realize that I am part of the system that is inhabited by predominantly black and brown men right. and women. Right. Um, that's how I contribute to perpetuating systemic racism every day that keeps a portion of the population imprisoned and unfree. Right. Um, I'm a little freer when I realize that about myself. Mm -hmm. I because that's a benefit of being white and being conscious is that I'm a little freer. Right. Because when we, okay, for instance, if I engage in a lie, and I have, I, I actually, in the last couple of years, I, I told what I call a white lie to a mm -hmm. friend to cover, you know, I didn't want to out two other people, right. and so I lied. That thing ate me up, mm. and, and there was something about it until I actually called the friend, came clean. Right. I'm telling you, my body calmed down. I didn't even know that I was carrying it. White supremacy is a lie. All white people carry this lie around. Right. And it takes the intention, the deliberate um, commitment to dismantle the lie. Right. Otherwise, you're part of the lie. Mm. And all white people inside know that. Why should white people address white privilege? For that very reason. Mm. I think there is 
and I'm, I, I, I'm going to get in trouble saying this, but I really do think that spiritually, mm-hmm. and I'm not talking religiously, I'm not right. a religious person, but spiritually, I do believe that people who do not address inequities, whether it's racism, sexism, right. religion, whatever it is, that um, people that don't address this carry that with them mm-hmm. and, and are operating at a spiritual deficit. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you can get away with living your whole life doing that, right. but you, you can get away on the outside. I don't think you can get away on the inside. Right. And I happen to believe that at the moment when we depart, when people take off from this plane, right. I do believe that there is a, there is a, a, there's a revelation and an understanding of who you really are right. and that all of this was manufactured and made up for the purpose of um, material gain. Mm-hmm. For, I mean, we know that, that racism is about economics right every single aspect of it there's not any instance where it's not about economics there's always a money trail so for instance there's a new um, music venue very close to here that is um, uh, that is advertising and promoting um, this new venue it's an old new venue but it's in memory of a very, very famous civil rights leader. In fact, the person who's on the street sign out there. Right. Um, it matter. okay, I'm going to back up. It matters where money comes from and the spirit of the money, okay? I agree. So when I'm filmmaking, I've been very careful about who I raise money from for my film because it really does matter. Energetically, it matters. So this instance, I'm not, I'm very happy that there is the honoring of this person. Um, I happen to know that some of the people that have bought this establishment spent New Year's Eve at Mar-a-Lago with Trump and they are very much in the camp. They are married to people who have businesses that create t-shirts that are um, pro, you know, very, very conservative right. and anti right. or whatever. That's not, that, that's not the issue, but you're talking about a venue that carries the, the cachet right. of one of the most um, uh, committed, dedicated, sacrificing mm-hmm. civil rights leaders right. um, and we are living in a state where they just cut out black people's votes right. locally right. that was what he spent his life doing so what I'm hoping is that I understand that there is a family a distant family member that is that is also a partner of this my hope is is that if they're going to use the name to advertise and to build a wealthy business and a successful venue, that that venue is inclusive of the goal of the man who's on the street sign. And so it's it's, it's ironic that you bring that up because I was just listening to like an old clip from um, Dr. Claude Anderson. Um, and he does a lot of uh, stuff around economics and reparations of black folks and, you know, um, trying to really come up with a plan and really breaking down by the numbers, right? And he brought up something saying uh, one of the levels of the plan needs to be to um, highlight businesses, corporations, or organizations uh, that have 
benefited from slavery and, and black labor. Um, and our and he had mentioned like in his book, I want to say power, 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 powernomics. Uh, I think that's what it's called, mm-hmm. powernomics. That he had, they had already like found like two hundred something organizations, uh, companies or something like that, that was fundamentally backed by slavery, racism, discrimination, the the, the labor of black folks, and kind of what you're talking about is is kind of identifying that, right? Or it's been identified. It's how it it's happens happening. currently. This how it happens currently. And um, and I'm always, you know, I'm always rooted for, like, you know, calling shit out. Like, I really believe, like, especially white folks, if you know, calling folks out that that have organizations, that have companies that you know that's rooted in the in fundamentally backed by black labor historically because I feel like we need to know that and those should be the people that's that's investing in a reparations fund um, specifically yeah. because if and maybe that is the case in right. the thing that I was just talking about right. and, and you probably don't want to use that for the show but right. but you're right it's because it, I don't have the answers. I'm just raising right. the question, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything. Right. But it does seem odd to me right. that someone that is clearly and very overtly and publicly mm-hmm. a public figure who's bought an establishment but partnered with a relative right. of it's it but gets real. But I'm but I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure that is happening a lot. But it's just, it's yeah. it's you just have to find it's hidden. It right, is. it is really hidden because we you, these organizations and companies have been that, that has been here two hundred years or three hundred years. They had to be backed and funded by something. Well, they were they were <laughs> they were funding the 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 um, the building of slave ships, right? You know, and then there were the companies that they, they financed the slave. They knew what they were or building. Insure slave. They were something. And they insured them. Yeah, yes. it's oh, it's it's all it's, and, and they might have split up, and it might be a different name now or whatever. But I'm pretty sure, like, if you if we get enough dedicated people to do that research, and it's really start like flipping over stuff. I I bet most of these companies has been around for a long time or changed their name. I don't think it's unknown. I think yeah. I I think it's already pretty known. Pretty known. It's a matter of what are you going to do, do about it? Yeah, and do not, you, you know <clears throat> and and how do you make people care? Right. Um, right. And and for me, you know, getting back to you know I don't have unlike 20 years ago I know I don't have the answers, mm-hmm. but it's the reason I wrote my book. Right. I know some of the questions that I had to ask that shifted my understanding and expanded it. Right. Um, and I think that's the, I, I think that's really, you know, it is a one-on, it is a one-on-one thing. Right. It's systemic, but in terms of, you know, I've watched people in my life personally who were bristled at the idea of hearing how many people how many friends said do you have to call it the white privilege pop quiz it's just you know they didn't want the term white privilege um and you know after they read the first chapter went oh Hmm. and there's no blame there's no this isn't about 
you know, white people bad, black, right. you know, it's, it's not about that. It's about right. what are those things that you don't see because you've never thought of. It's like taking somebody to another country. Right. All this reflect. Stuff. Yeah, you got to reflect. You got to work on yourself. You just work on it. And that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, you, it's, raising, it's raising the awareness so that, A, you're not in lockdown emotionally. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't <laughs> know, and this is presented, the... I mean, most people who react right. in, a, in a really quick knee-jerk way um, are scared that you're going to take something away from them. You're yeah. going to make them feel bad. You know, all all of these things, and it's just because they, they haven't they haven't had any exposure internally right. to where this lives. They don't even understand what internalized biases are. Right. Not just race. You know. Well, we, we, we know the cost of racism for black folks, right? We know what, what those costs can be. What are some of the costs for white folks when it comes to racism? Well, as I said to you before, I mean, and right. to me it's a big one. Is right. the, the, I think there is a spiritual deficit, yeah. right. certainly, um, that without acknowledging and doing um, what you can during your lifetime to disrupt it and change it, um, for for other people, I think mm -hmm. there's a I think you, there's a spiritual deficit, but I think it's deeper than that. Even um, your your ability to have close relationships with a lot of different people, real right. meaningful relationships. So you're limited culturally, right. you're limited educationally, you're limited. Um, you're you live in fear mm -hmm. because there's the lie inside of you that you haven't you don't realize is there and so you're reacting to anything outside of that right. um, viscerally that's very stressful mm -hmm. um, it's you know it's not the same kind of stress that a person of color experiences in dealing with systems but it's stressful to live a lie um, it's minimizing your life is smaller right um, and and also if you once you pierce that the deception the lie once you pierce the lie um i think there is a um i think there is a deeper wave of compassion and 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 more love that you can experience in the world and i mm -hmm. think a lot of people who i see a lot of people who are really angry right. and defensive and and not living real happy lives um they have a lot of stuff right but, um, you know, and, and I had to get over, you know, I'm not going to convert every single person that's got three yachts and 14 out. You know, right. it's, just, it's not going to happen. Right, right. Um, what have been some of the best practices or ways that you've been able to figure out that maybe it could help others, white folks specifically, to be a good ally of people of color, black and brown folks, indigenous folks? Um, well, the first thing is to do nothing when you realize right. that you've had a sort of a revelation. I really think that it's there's a lot of right. there's a lot of internal reflecting, questioning, all that kind of and stuff. And let me preface this to be a good ally without taking up too much space. Yeah. Right? Well, for instance, um, you know, Black History Month. I used to I used to get called all the time for Black History Month. <laughs> Um, and you know, I realized, half, yeah, really? I did. Oh yeah. Are you kidding me? That was, wow. my, that was my busiest month. Um, that and MLK. But what happened was I started, and you know, I, 
I'm a freelance filmmaker, writer. I live by, you know, what I do. And so I would be compensated for it. Right. Not like, you know, big time people or anything. Right. But, it, you know, so you could say to me, oh, yeah, you're using, you know, systemic racism for your, for your income. Well, you don't do this because it's fun. Right. You know, or because it's so you're it's not to me. It wasn't like wealth building. But there was remuneration for it. So I had right. to, and there got to be a point where people would call me, and when I would ask them what they wanted me to talk about, I would say, you know, I actually think a person of color is who you need in this. Sometimes you need me. Sometimes right. you need the white person to talk to the, to the white, white people. Right. So that, and that's really my thing is like, right. if you're going to bring me in, I want to talk to white people. Right. Um, in fact, I just got brought to um, Augustana College recently. Where's that at? Where's um, that's at? in Moline, Illinois. Okay. And um, they brought me in and uh, it was going to it was on a Thursday night and you know it's just last fall so I hadn't traveled since the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. Got stuck in Dallas. It was going to be canceled. That was supposed to be at seven o'clock. I'm calling I'm stuck in Dallas for seven hours wow. and originally I was going to have time to go change clothes you know fix my hair right. and I'm in Dallas and so they're trying to decide are we going to cancel we not so remember they've you know they've got this on a Thursday night it's rainy and cold really cold in Moline Illinois it's like sleeting right. and the thing is at seven they've done all this promotion and it's about white privilege pop quiz and they geared it towards fraternities white fraternities and white sororities mm -hmm. and you know that's who the audience and, and I was expecting I don't know I thought they'd have like 10 people to be honest with you I was like you know there's right. not going to be a whole lot of people showing up for this right. and I also didn't see their marketing so I didn't know I mean I didn't know whether they were promoting it or whatever right. anyway they finally we realize I'm my my gig is at seven I'm getting in at 645 there's no I'm going to make it, so they push it to 8 o'clock. Okay. Now I know there's nobody coming. <laughs> Thursday night, right. 8 o'clock, rainy, cold. I got to Augustana. I walked in, and it was a completely full auditorium. Wow. And they were having to be really careful because of COVID. So everybody's mm, trying to space good. out, but there weren't really any spaces. There were over 150 kids. Wow. And it was white fraternities white sororities, um, and there were definitely students of color there, of right. course, because they always want to hear, what are you saying? It was the best conversation I've ever had with group kids. And I know that only I could have done that, right. not only I in the world, but right. just, you know, it was like, okay. And that's, for, for me, that's, it's like, if you could hire a person of color to do this, first of all, everything I've learned about this and discovered is because of, people of color right. but more so so for me personally that's how I, that's how I'm an ally is if I know right. that they're better off with someone or it's not something that, right. so that's me in my space right um, how do you how do you how do you try to navigate and help other white folks become allies like hey Molly I'm trying to figure this out <laughs> outside oh. of that you know I've done my self Self-reflecting, which I think is a continuous thing, right? Yeah. Um, but just continue education around allyship um, with people of color. Is it, you know, is it like those two things that you would say, hey, you know, tell black folks, you know, what's going on, what's being said. 
um, I forgot the other one that you said. Within uh, reason, yeah. Yeah, yeah, within reason, yeah. Tell um, tell them and and um, and and don't go to them for right. you know don't don't let them don't don't make them be your educators. You know, um, did you hear about uh, the NFL Brian Flores situation? A little bit, yeah. And so um, Bill Belichick was an unintentional <laughs> white ally, but uh, I think this is a good. I, here's here's a good situation i feel like that was a good like calling it out or letting um your black colleague or peer or friend know about like something that's going on so brian flores a black head coach former head coach for miami dolphins was let go um that was already right. questionable um so he was he's going through the interview process um with the nfl's nfl teams um and he had an interview coming up with the Giants. And so, and it was another guy, um, Brian Delbo, Debo, something like that, white coach, same first name. Bill Belichick had congratulated Brian, not knowing which Brian, or confused about which Brian he was texting. And come to find out, because of Bill Belichick and the receipts, the white Brian had already got the job, had already, it had already been done deal without the black Brian even like uh, having an opportunity to even like sway the leadership of the oh, Giants wow. any other way. So he still went in for the interview because this was before the interview happened and still sat through and everything. But of course he already knew that he didn't get the job because Bill Belichick told him. And Bill Belichick know he had like messed up. He was like, oh shit, because Brian, the black Brian was like, you sh are you texting the right Brian? Because, you know, because he hadn't even been on the interview yet. And so that that was just a perfect example um, of mm -hmm. an unintentional ally in Bill Belichick because he, he mistakenly did that. But it's like when when you when we have these opportunities, we really don't even have them because you know. And many times, white folks have already picked that person or already in yeah. cahoots. Like, okay, we got you, but because the NFL have this Rudy rule that is that uh, incentivizes uh, basically pretty much a boxing. You know, um, they can check off and say, "Hey, we brought in a minority." Um, but we person. already hired. Yeah, to the interview, but we already, you know, we already picked the person. So that was just like, we need more intentional Bill Belichick's. Yeah, and that's you know who's an intentional one. If we're going to talk sports, is mm -hmm. and one of my favorites, and there's more than him, but Steve Kerr is probably oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Golden the Knights Warriors. or the yeah, Warriors. Warriors, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I mean. Powerful, powerful ally. And, and know it, and that's ironic that you bring that up because the position that he that he's in now, Mark Jackson, a black coach, was in that position, and fundamentally, fundamentally built the team that Steve Kerr took to the championship. And that was a whole another question too about like just race. Like, hold on, like Mark Jackson got the team here to the playoffs, and Steve Kerr, you know, and for some reason the leadership like didn't feel like. Mark Jackson mm -hmm. was a, was the right fit. Steve Kerr comes in, and like I think the next year or the second year, they win the championship. And right. some people was like, "How much credit do you give Steve Kerr?" And he just comes into the already made situation that Mark Jackson had to build up, and then he was let go. Yeah. And so even that, and I think Steve Kerr recognized that. I think maybe. I think he addressed. Yeah, that, he addressed he? it. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. He and he's addressed. It. A lot of things, and that, yeah. I mean, and I'm not sure about the specifics yeah. of that, and that's you know that's valid. Yeah, but. yeah, but this is like like you know there was just that you bring it up that he addresses it, but like 
Yeah, like, and yeah, still. Still, you know, probably. And I'm sure there are things, I mean, I know there are things that I don't see right. that I encounter that I'm blind to or mm -hmm. that I behave in a particular kind of way. I mean, right. it's, like you said, it's a lifetime. Right. I'm not, you know, this, is, this isn't like, oh, six months. Right. This is. Um, forever. It's forever. Yeah. And my phone does ring a lot. Like, I, I do have people, white people call me all the time. Like, if they get into a, and I always know it. If I haven't heard from them in two years and all mm -hmm. of a sudden it's like, hey, listen, I need to run something by you, I know what it is. Right. And, and, and I'm not making, I'm, I'm happy to be a, a sounding board. Um, and that's kind of what I've encouraged people to do, talk right. to other white people. So yeah. I, I signed up white for this White people have to job. work on white people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I signed up for this. Um, right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that this is another thing I'm getting me in trouble. But, you know, we talk, I touched on religion. But I really do believe that um, religion has helped perpetuate and maintain this for so long. Mm. Mm. Organized religion. Mm. I really believe it. Um, and uh, I think it's just, I mean, worldwide. Right. And, you know, the Catholic Church has never, or not the Catholic Church, the Christian religion has never acknowledged uh, to the depth that it still perpetuates mm -hmm. this dominance. And... Um, you know, we know the history. We know that, that, that black people that came here that were made slaves, you know, had to give up their spiritual practices mm -hmm. or disguise them. And, mm -hmm. and now, but now there's so much that's uh, politically people are controlled by religion and these organizations. And, you know, I, I really feel like that's like a big area where right. um, that, that, and I don't consider religion spirituality. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm not talking about not believing in anything. Right. Although I have to tell you, I just, I'm, I'm also, a, I narrate audiobooks, And I just narrated a book. I'm going to give him a shout out. A book called um, uh, The Bible for Atheists. A Bible for Atheists. And the book could have been called How to Be a Better Thinker. It does not denigrate religion or spiritual beliefs or practices. It's none of that. It breaks down how humans attach to notions of uh, spirituality and religion right. um, as a way to not engage right. with themselves. I mean, when you ask somebody a question and they quote scripture to you, right. They're not thinking. Right. That's not their thoughts. That's, right. It didn't come. It came from something that they've been told to believe, and they weren't taught how to think critically. Right. Again, I'm not dismissing religion. Right. That's, I'm, that's not, please don't put that on there. <laughs> but there is a lack of critical thinking universally, right. and that's why banning and now I banning mouse and all of these books that have that's the danger and all of this is right. we are not teaching critical thinking right. you should be we should be teaching critical thinking from a very early age so that you can have these controversial texts things that I don't right. even agree with right. so that there can be discussion and you we teach people how to break things down in terms of logic and rationale, that still leaves room to have a belief and right. a higher power or, right. you know, right. influence, and, divine influence. And that, has, it, that leaves a belief of still, like, I understand the purpose of something, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have to believe it, but I understand the purpose and the use, how it might help and aid somebody else. Um, but people lean it, on it yeah. as a, I mean, it's a, 
It's right. a crutch, but it, here's the interesting thing. It is a crutch, and it is an AK-47, right. the way it's being used now, the way it's being used in our state. We, have mm -hmm. a, we are in a state right now where we have the most dangerous governor we've ever had. Mm -hmm. I'm on my knee. I mean, if we could have Bill Haslam back tomorrow, I would, like, blink my eyes and make right. it happen. Um, you know, and he was a Republican. We are in huge trouble in Tennessee. The level of, um, I mean, his fanaticism, religious fanaticism, and his insistence that he is right is the most dangerous thing we've ever faced in this state. And we've had faced a lot of things in this state, but right. he is by far, and this jury, this, the, the voter redistricting is only the middle. It's not even the beginning, it is the middle. Tip and and they've been planning this Conservatives, Christian conservatives, hiding behind Christianity, their policies having nothing to do with Christianity, but hiding and weaponizing Christianity have um, damaged so many lives. I mean, it, right. it, it's really hard to even get at all of the ways in which it's happening. But people have become hypnotized by this. Mm -hmm. and, um, and of course, the, the more that gets exposed, George Floyd exposed so many things. People, right. well, a lot of people had awakenings. A lot of people haven't stopped their awakenings, and I'm really happy to see that. Right. And I also know that the the room was filled up. The school board room was filled up last night in McMinn County, and they called out the school board and said, "You have no right to do this." So these are good things. This means people are thinking, but we have to teach critical thinking. Right. Um, and we have a governor that was never suited to be governor. Um, and people are, you know, feeling despondent and, um, and, and feeling like giving up because it's, there's just so much, they've, and, and, you know, they've accumulated so much power. What have you noticed, like, being in this pandemic that we've been in, um, what has the pandemic kind of showed us about like racial biases and, and white supremacy. Have you reflected on that? Have you thought about that? Um, yeah. Especially well, I, from a health, right? We know from a, like, it, it highlighted health disparities that had always been there for a long time, right? Yeah. And I, now, oh, I mean, who got the vaccines and who right, didn't and who, right. who is, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, yes, so much has been revealed through this because there was a hold. People mm -hmm. weren't like running off to, you know, whether running right. off to make money or, I mean, some people still had to go to work. Right. But for the most part, the brakes were on for a good nine months to a year for everybody. Right. Um, and I think that, again, it is the, if you're at home and there's nothing going on but watching television, hopefully you're not, you know, just watching the news. <laughs> right. Because that's very And stressful. what news are you watching? Yeah, you know, and what news are you watching? And what non-news are, are you watching? watching? Right. Um, you know, again, I really think that a lot of what happened is people who were even, people who were not the, not the least bit concerned mm -hmm. about systemic racism woke up a little bit during George Floyd. Right. Only because they were home. Right. Only because there was no there was nowhere to run, right. and it was right there in front of you. I mean, right. like you know, nine minutes and however many seconds that was. Right. Um, and it's unfortunate that it had to be dramatized <coughs> in that way for oh. people to to say, "Oh, yeah, I guess these things 
do still happen and these things have been happening right. for hundreds of years and they weren't caught on camera i mean the greatest contribution that Stephen jobs ever did you know was the iphone right. i mean all of these things would not be happening right. without the iphone um and even with that it's still hard to get accountability well see because it's only the it's only the surface. Right. There are always people, you know, there there are, you know, I'm not even saying that anybody, you know, wh whether it's me, my book, or Robin D'Angelo, or, or Abram Kendi, or Tim Wise, or Peggy McIntosh, it's like, yes, people can be impacted if they're educated. Right. Um, but you have to want to be educated. Right. Um, and that's the thing. And I have to keep coming back. It's like, okay, this is not about, you know, for me, for someone who recovered from stage four cancer, this isn't yours to fix. Right. But this is part of your work here right. as a human. Right. As a human who cares about what happens to other people. Right. And who wants to share the plant, who actually wants relationships with lots of different, and you want the richness right. of other people and cultures and. What, what does a anti-racist America, world, what does that look like? Is that a is that doable? Is that realistic? Or if you if, if that could be possible, what would that look like to well, you? Well it's funny you say that because I have for the past several years, you know, as a writer, mm -hmm. I'm always writing something new in my head. But um I tried to write a play or like a short story, not a play. I tried to write a short story about if race, the illusion of race mm -hmm. had never, had never manifested. Mm -hmm. The that, that racism, which is, ra you know, and I say to other white people is racism is a tool to um, prop up white supremacy. It's just a tool. Right. Um, it, racism isn't the problem, it's what's used for it because, and there's an economic component, which right. is white supremacy is all about right. economics. Um, but I tried to write a story where there was no such thing as race. And I couldn't and do you it. You couldn't do it. I mean, and, and which makes me kind of sad because right. I don't have an imagination for it. Right. And actually does make me sad. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I'll, you know, it's so funny. I'm so aware of this is such a, you know, a person who is white. It's like, I find it, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be angry. I don't right. want to wake up angry. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, um, I don't want to feel like I'm in a fight. I really don't. I know when I'm in the pocket and when I'm creating something and I'm really in a rhythm that feels really good. And I, right. and yet I know that that can't happen in a bubble. Right. And that is the privilege of a white person is because I get to say, because if I, I could easily say, I don't want to be angry and I don't want to think about this stuff and I don't want to, you know, right. and then I don't have to. Although for me, I've discovered recently, somebody called me the other day and told me about something that was happening and without even thinking. I mean, I was mad as a hornet's nest and then I was on the phone for the whole morning. Right. So, you know, it's not really even a choice right. anymore. Right. Um, but I don't think it's the answer. I'm right. not saying I have, I, I, like, you know. And I think, like, speaking of privilege, right, you can get mad at it in a way that I have to be careful about how I get mad about exactly. it. Exactly. That's, that's the privilege is that right. my being mad about it doesn't, it's nothing. It's not threatful. 
right? It's not it's threatful. Not, not, yeah, it's not threatful. But oh, let me get upset about it. Exactly. Yeah. No. I'm public this, enemy number one in general, but <laughs> let me be angry. Exactly. About systemic issues and racial discrimination and yeah, and so I have to, I have to have the, I have to have a double conscious. I have to come up with navigation skills, right, on how to, on how to figure out how to make it through this or make it through a day or in a, or a lifetime. Um, well, I'm not in perpetual right. fight or flight mode. Right. You know. Yeah. And and that you know again, one of the greatest privileges is right. that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to think about it. Right. Um, and I'm only as impacted as I want to be. Right. And that's know? the privilege. And that's the privilege. So, mm. yeah, it's um, you know, and I and I. I never imagined that 20 years ago or 25 years ago, whenever I first started thinking about these things, you know, I never imagined that we'd be sitting here talking today right. and things would be almost worse than they were. Yeah. And I don't know if they're, and I don't, I'm going to say this, I don't know if they're worse, it's just that we know what they are. Right. Now we see more. Right. But the the new the jury rigging or the the the, the district rigging that yeah, just happened redistricting, that yeah. is you know we've gone back to 1950 something yeah and it's and it's so difficult because many of us are so miscegenated now right so mixed in that on the surface it can everything can look good and sweet and things like the redistricting probably just went over a lot of people's heads and really don't know um really how harmful that really is and, and, and was and is going to be um, until really is, is, is last minute. Because, and I don't want to get into them and us because right. I don't believe in all that, right. but there is a, a, there is a conservative agenda mm -hmm. and the agenda is to keep people in turmoil right keep people in turmoil keep them uneducated keep them so busy trying to survive that they don't have time to really assess and be educated right. and be you know and you know when you think about it, if you're in constant fight or flight mode right you're thinking about how you're going to eat right and how you're going to stay alive that night right you know um you're not thinking politics right you know and if you're not being you know, if you're not learning in school and everybody's right. not learning together mm -hmm. what's what um, right. and critical thinking isn't being taught. So then you've got people, there are people that are doing good work out there from a completely emotional place that, again, and they're not aware of right. what's rooting, you know, what's going on inside of right. them. Right. I mean, if you're acting from a place of fear and anger and um, desperation, there's not a whole lot. Of hopefulness in that, so it's how do you, you know, how do you stay in alignment and do the work? And that's for me is like I try to keep myself in check and and be wise with my words right. and not be a loose cannon um, because it's too easy, especially now. Right. Everybody's mad. Everybody's yelling. Everybody's saying something. A whole bunch of noise. A bunch of noise, and and that is when you asked me what came out of the cancer. Is like I got quiet for a couple of years, mm. really quiet, and I was like, I'm not saying anything until I really have something to say, and th and everything that I had to say, is right. in that book. 
you know. What's next for you? Um, well, you know, I'm a filmmaker, and I've been making a film for seven years, uh, Scouting for Diamonds. Okay. Um, COVID hit, and we lost our finishing funds, so we've kind of been in limbo with that. Um, so I'm looking to finish that hopefully in the next year. Okay. Um, and I, um, I narrate books. I just narrate, uh, in fact, um, Audible just approached me. The book did, you know, for a self-published book, it did really well. We were, or I was, it was number one for four weeks over it. Um, you can put it up for the camera. Yeah. It's my book. It's my book. Great. <laughs> Looking in the mirror, reflection. Um, the book did really well locally, and, um, and because of that, Audible, I, I narrate audiobooks, and Audible approached me and said, hey, we'd like to produce your book. Wow. We'll have you narrate it. We'll promote it. So we just finished doing it in the fall. It's coming out any day now. It, it actually, you can download. Yeah, Thank congratulations. you. Yeah. I mean, they, you, if you go to Audible right now and type in my name, you can download. You can get the book. It just doesn't have the new artwork in it, and I don't know why they haven't put new artwork in. But it's available. Um, so for people who don't, if you don't read, um, you don't have time to read. You can put listen. this on in the car. Yeah. No. Um, no. And I, you know, I really. I really did, I really was mindful when I wrote it. It was like, I'm not about attacking right. people. I'm not about diminishing people for what they right. don't know or assuming that I know better. All I know is that there were some questions mm -hmm. that got me to really see the world differently myself right. and understand my relationship to it so that I didn't have to carry this defensiveness saying, this isn't right. my problem. Right. Um, but, I, you know, it's, and they're, it's funny in places. It's right. revealing. I tell some stories on myself about when I was first starting out. Yeah. And thought that I was the white person who knew everything. <laughs> Typical of a white person. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what? I'm going to quote this really good friend of mine. She used to say to me, this is a long time ago, but she said, you know what's hard about being friends with y'all? So she goes, Y'all always have to be the experts. Mm. And man, did that hurt my feelings mm. at the time many years ago. Right. And I was like, oh my God, she's so right. Yeah. You know, and that was part of it. And she and I have been friends since the year I moved here. So we had, before my going to Fisk mm -hmm. and doing some work, right. we were really good friends for four years. And then I had to go, oh my God. And, and, and I'm going to go a little deeper than that the indoctrination of white supremacy, you know, we're all affected by it. So even me as a black person is being conditioned and growing up, I can honestly feel that white people do know more. White people are the experts. White people are right. White is right, right? And and so that's a that's a characteristic of mannerism and indoctrination by white supremacy that um that 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 black folks carry around because like, are we seeing it through, if all of our teachers are white, or white women, right? <laughs> Everybody that we see on TV, propaganda, movies, and they're, and they're the ones that hold these titles and they're always the smart characters, um, are always saving the world and stuff like that. That's conditioning. Yeah. You know, and so. Which, um, thank God that it is changing. You right. look at the head of Netflix, the head of diversity right. at Netflix, and things are changing. Right. And that, to me, is, but that's, that's how it you yeah. perpetuate it right. within. That's how I perpetuate it, exactly. Yeah, but can we say something about Black History Month? Can go ahead, go ahead. Right. Black, it's, 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 Black, it's Black History, History Month. Month. And here's my thing about Black History Month: What's is that thing? 
we talk about honoring, you know, all these amazing achievements right. by black people who have invented more things that have been taken, that white people have taken credit for in the last couple of hundred years. And we're now starting to realize all these things. Right. I mean, there's just hundreds and thousands of inventions right. and discoveries and right. medical, you right. know, all kinds of things. Um, we talk about, you know, black history, about the achievements, but the focus, it should be on the achievements of black people, but it's the reason those achievements are so magnificent, because right. all of these things were done in the face of white supremacy. Right. In the midst of white supremacy. That's why these achievements are great. It's right. not because that black person's exceptional, right. exceptional. Right. it's because they did this. In spite. In spite of, mm -hmm. in spite of being told your, you know, your brain is not the, the equivalent of a white person. All, all of those right. things, those early things that were done. Right. Not having the same access to things. Not having the same resources. Exactly. You know, being outlawed to be able to read. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Inherit property. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. there are still laws in the books. You know, there's a couple counties in Tennessee where still a black person cannot inherit property. Wow. And I did a workshop actually at I didn't know that. Well, I didn't either. But I did a workshop with a group of women about uh, when my book first came out. And it was a group of Belmede women. Um, there were a couple lawyers in there. And one of the women, they read my book as mm -hmm. part of their book club. And she said, she was reading it going, well, wait a minute, because I have a whole thing on there right. about inheriting property and about what that means right. generationally. And she said, there are still laws on the books um, where people in Tennessee uh, cannot inherit property and wow. she said she's in her mid-70s and she said that's what I'm working on from now until I go Wow! so so I have hope I know right. we talked about I have a lot of hope mm -hmm. and I, I I have to say I am in the midst of this storm right. I want to say shit storm but I probably <laughs> shouldn't but in the middle of this maelstrom of um, conflict and, 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 and ugliness, really, right. I am hopeful. I, 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 I am hopeful, and I, I have to be hopeful right. or I wouldn't get up in the morning. But I've seen it, I have seen a difference. I've seen my friends grow. I've right. seen people in my sphere grow. I've seen, I get letters from total strangers. So I have to be, I have to be inspired and move forward knowing, okay, that was one more person. Right. That was one more person. That was one more person. Right. And one more person, you know, someday there's going to be a person that we look up and go, oh, my God, that's so-and-so from right. fifth grade, right. you know. Well, Molly, I appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate this conversation. I, I hope it wasn't you, too rambling. No, no, and I appreciate you opening up and just really calling shit out. And, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank well, you thank so you for And people, go get, the, go, go get the book, White Privilege Pop Quiz, Reflecting on Whiteness. I'm showing um, it right now. Yeah, she's showing it. <laughs> and I'm going to get, I have my copy that's going to get signed. Oh, and yeah. this is for you to give to someone else. And she gave me, we're not going to tell, we should, we're not going to say why you give me two books, but. <laughs> 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 but uh, thank you again. And um, Well, thank you. you and thank you for back. doing this show. Oh, I no. love, I love this format. Oh, I love this you. room. Thank you. And I hope it gets as big as you want it to get. Or, yeah. Yeah. Take over the world. Take over the world. <laughs> All right, Molly. Thank you. Okay. Thanks.